Raj. And I'm Eddie. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. We are a podcast dedicated exclusively to hematologic malignancies, where we bring in content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in biology and clinical management. Please take a moment to rate and review our podcast in whichever app you listen to your podcast in. Today, we are excited to talk about the management of high-risk multiple myeloma, which is an evolving entity as our treatments continue to improve. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Martin Kaiser, a consultant hematologist at the Royal Marsden in London and team leader of the Myeloma Molecular Therapy Group at the Institute of Cancer Research. He was the chief investigator of the Optimum trial, one of the first trials to offer tailored therapy for patients with molecularly defined high-risk multiple myeloma. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Kaiser. To start with, can you tell us about yourself and your career background and how you came to develop an interest in high-risk multiple myeloma? Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm a little bit of an unusual person in 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 Europe, at least, where you have most of the times people that are growing up in a certain area, at least when they go down the route of being a doctor, stay in that area. It has to do, of course, with many languages. So the trial groups are often very populated by people that were had grown up in that system. I grew up in Germany, I was born in Germany, grew up in Germany, went to uni in Germany, and actually tended intended to spend a research time in the UK, which was meant to be only two years, and then things just happened. And I stayed, and now it's, I think, the 12th year by now that I am at the Royal Marsden and the ICR in London. And I did straight from the beginning of hematology training is a bit different than in England or the US that you often do research by the side, which is, of course, not a great setup as such. But I do see sometimes the upsides and the downsides as well. So I started straight from, you already do an MD res in uni normally in the last year, which is more of a written project for many, but for me, it was an experimental one. It started with myeloma and then I uh, continued through and more or less moved more and more out from the Petri dish into patient-based research. I felt more and more that really the focus on diagnostics, on understanding how probably the characteristics of the disease translate into outcomes really make a big difference in patients. The more treatments we had in myeloma, of course, alongside that, a lot of drugs were developed by industry and I was a trialist throughout all of that. And eventually it um, the opportunity emerged that I could join the both, which was of course great. The laboratory side on the one end and really seeing how we can use the treatments best for our patients, probably always having in my ear, both in Germany as well as in the UK, about what costs myeloma is incurring to healthcare systems, which was part of a driver of joining the two as well. Awesome. So thanks, Dr. Kaiser, for joining. So before we get started, I just wanted to give a warning for the audience that high-risk myeloma can get very complex very quickly. And we will go into a lot of weeds here, including uh, the genetic abnormalities that define high-risk myeloma and a lot of trials that have been done in high-risk myeloma and in myeloma in general, and looking at the outcome specifically in high risk. So to break it down crystal clear for our audience, we have dedicated the first part of the podcast into identifying patients with high-risk myeloma, which is one of the most important things we do when we first see a patient with multiple myeloma is identifying who is high risk and who is not to avoid both undertreatment and overtreatment. So the first part of the podcast will be dedicated to that. And then the second part will, will be talking about uh, the general principles of management. And the third part will be talking about specific trials, including the optimum trial. And finally, if we have time, we'll dig a little bit into some of the health policy issues and how drugs get approved. So let's jump right in and we'll start with a case and discuss the data as we go. So this is a patient that I saw a few years ago. I've changed some of the details. So a 42-year-old male presented with worsening back pain over the past six to eight months for which he saw his primary care doctor. And he underwent blood work, which showed a new onset anemia with a hemoglobin of 9.4 grams per deciliter. His renal function was normal. Calcium level was normal. Because of the back pain, he underwent imaging, which showed several marrow-replacing lesions consistent with malignancy. Subsequently, he had a bone marrow biopsy, which showed plasma cell myeloma, infiltrating 90% of the bone marrow. And he had fish cytogenetics, which was positive for T1416. About 50% of the CD138 positive cells were positive for T1416. And also had amplification 1Q or four copies of 1Q. About 60% of the cells had amp 1Q. His LDH level was normal. He was RISS stage 3 and also had double hit disease, that is two high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. 
So, Dr. Kaiser, with that case in the background, I want to first discuss what is high-risk multiple myeloma. So, as the term high-risk has been used for a variety of different abnormalities, can you walk us through your approach on what you consider as truly high-risk, especially in the context of current treatment, that is, for example, VRD transplant lung maintenance or DARA-VRD transplant lung maintenance. So, in the context of a triplet or quadruplet induction, upfront transplant and maintenance, what is truly high-risk in the current era? That's, with this example, an interesting point, because I think there are, of course, features of that presentation that already, I think, point to the fact that something must have gone on relatively quickly in this young person. I mean, we do know now that myeloma is always preceded by MGUS, and we do know in some people this takes 20 years. But if a patient with 42, I think is what you mentioned, has developed this already, either they had a precursor clone already in childhood, more or less, or something must have happened in a relatively short time frame. So the fact that the bone marrow is full, for me personally, I always think there's two avenues to that. Either you have had a clone growing for 50 years, and eventually it will reach 90%, or you have just disease that unfortunately does not stand still. I think that's one way to view it. However, growth is not everything in terms of defining aggressiveness. I think especially with the quadruple induction therapies and transplant and maintenance, as you, just, as you mentioned, we have, of course, very powerful tools at hand now to bring the majority of our patients, I mean, response rates of close to 90%, we, we virtually bring everyone into remission. And in some sense, the definition of high risk for me has more emerged about the speed of relapse in these tumors. Now, overall myeloma, as much as I, I wished it would be different, I do consider it as an incurable disease with the current treatments that we have. And in a very simplistic way, I do see that if we're not if we're not able to really eradicate the clone, the main thing that is actually the difference is the regrowth opportunities that these tumors have and, and how quickly they can adapt to the treatment and actually then regrow again. And that's a feature that characterizes particularly a group. And that's, of course, then the difficulty by knowing this. You, you have to deduct that information from clinical trials. It doesn't help that much. Not that many are primary refractory. It's actually mostly the knowledge which of the lesions are associated with such a quick relapse, which of the features are associated with such a quick relapse. And the genetics do come out amongst the strongest in this. And this is work that requires in large patient numbers to understand because there are so many different genetic abnormalities, which ones are, or whether the combination of genetic abnormalities is associated. Here, this patient has T14, 16, and an for one q so that they have two abnormalities. And I think that's going to be a recurrent theme in what I'm probably going to say. I think this is one of the strongest markers, and most importantly, also one of the most consistent markers that we have biomarkers for a high risk of early relapse is two or more even co-occurring risk lesions. Now, there is what something specific about this patient, T14-16, nearly always co-occurs with something else, which is actually also quite interesting, which is probably rather a reflection how aggressive T14-16 is in itself. And then there are, of course, other markers here. This patient, you mentioned LDH is normal. It's quite interesting. There's wide variability about that. That can be a proliferation marker. Uh, I think ISS-3 was a, a characteristic of this patient, which... ISS is, of course, quite consistent across clinical trials, but I always find it tricky. Some part of the ISS is just how long has the tumor grown or how quickly, and some part of it does seem to be a reflection of aggressiveness. So some of that clearly plays into that and is independent of the genetics as well. But I do consider personally molecular markers as probably the most reliable, the most consistent. They are ultimately physical alterations. They are the starting point of the disease as a genetic abnormality, myeloma being a genetic driven cancer as most other cancers and and they can help us diagnostically in the lab because they're discrete to be measured yeah that's very helpful so from what you are saying is any patient who has two or more high-risk abnormalities and the high risk being like t4 14 14 16 14 20 and uh, gain 1q amp 1q and deletion 17p so two or more those are really high risk but you know when we at least historically, what we have thought about in the RIS staging, any patient with any one of these high-risk abnormalities, we usually used to call them high-risk. So how do you view those patients currently, those who have only one abnormality, not two or more? Do you consider them high-risk or do you think those patients, the biology has changed now with the new treatments and they are more behaving like standard risk or intermediate risk? 
I think it is probably an experience that we all have when we only have information on these two markers that we see a wide variability in our patients now. Some patients are doing surprisingly well and others don't. So actually, I'm very biased because I have spent a lot of time and many years now in analyzing data sets. The, my first impulse is I want to know about these other lesions. I, I need to know the information on all of them to make a more discreet statement or a more precise statement about the patient. Now, that doesn't mean that having presence of one marker isn't a red flag in itself as well. It's not a good sign per se. And that has to do as well with how the tumor can evolve. We did a larger study that's probably a bit less well known, about 170 patients in a trial presentation relapse. Those that already had one risk marker, even if you measured everything, did tend to develop a second one at relapse, unfortunately. So it's not a good sign, but actually there's still a huge variability in what the outcome can be if you only have information on one marker. Sounds good. So basically double hit or triple hit, they're clearly high risk and one marker still, there's possibility that they can evolve clonal at relapse. As you said, they could become two or more high risk abnormalities. I wanted to touch a little bit on extramedullary disease because we see a lot, especially in the relapse refractory setting, but also newly diagnosed setting, we pay attention to that. And there is some controversy on whether all extramedullary disease are high risk or not. And there is some para-osseous disease versus truly extra-osseous disease, for example, liver disease. So how do you use the data from extramedullary disease, you know, from let's say PET-CT or a whole body MRI into risk stratification or diagnosis? It's a very interesting topic and, and something that I'm still not quite decided about, I have to say. Now, I think principally, I don't debate that the fact um, that a tumor that emerges from bone marrow resident cells can grow outside of the bone marrow is, again, is probably in, in, in itself a red flag. It's not a good sign. I think also what we often consider as extramedullary disease, are, especially with classical imaging methods, often quite big lumps of extramedullary disease in places where they shouldn't be. So if these are lesions that are quite big, I think they're always concerning. It always means that either something has grown for a long time or something has been going on quite rapidly. What we are seeing with more sensitive imaging methods, however, such as whole body MRI, is that maybe extramedullary disease is more frequent than we think. It's a similar uh, observation as we are finding more circulating plasma cells more than we did before with very high sensitivity flow cytometry-based methods. So the disease does seem to have a propensity beyond a certain growth tipping point maybe to also grow outside of the bone marrow. And we have seen these in just the millimeter range, for example, in the liver around the kidneys quite often in our whole body MRI uh, series, and they disappear entirely and they don't necessarily predict a terrible outcome later down the line. So I think we are facing that, again, a recurrent pet theme of mine is that we haven't been particularly paying a lot of focus and attention on diagnostics in myeloma. A lot of the focus has been driven by the excitement, rightly so, about new treatments. But standardizing imaging, for example, standardizing genetics uh, uh, has fallen a little bit by the wayside in that excitement. Sounds good. And, and also the uh, plasma cell leukemia, as you just said, circulating plasma cell, we are finding if we use high sensitivity flow cytometry, we are finding in almost everybody newly diagnosed myeloma. But, you know, as we know, the historically 20% or more plasma cells on morphology, on CBC and differential, and now 5% or more, which is the new definition of plasma cell leukemia. That, of course, is also considered high risk. And those patients were included you know, in, in your trial, the optimum trial as well. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was gene expression profiling, because we don't have that available commercially, at least in the US. We had the Orkansa signature before, which was at one point was available, but it's not anymore, unfortunately. And then there's Sky92, which is the one that you used in your trial. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about gene expression profiling? What percentage of patients are high risk by GEP at diagnosis? And is there an overlap with FISH? And do you expect those will be commercially available in the near future? So gene expression profiling, of course, it has a long history, as you said, and especially UMS has played a big role in, in defining this. But to be honest, myeloma as a disease did, did not stand alone with gene expression profiles being used to predict aggressiveness or outcome of the disease. And to be frank, there are diseases where they are used 
uh, standard of care, such as in breast cancer. You might, we might all by now know relatives or colleagues who have been diagnosed and have had a gene expression test there to actually guide further treatment. And as in these solid diseases, these solid cancers, we we did ask the question in one of our retrospective studies, does it tell us something extra? Because in these other malignancies, you can also do a mutation testing, you can do even sometimes proliferation testing, and still the signature does tell you some, give you some extra information why it's used there. And I think the evidence for that in myeloma is really quite solid, that even if you do the best genetic test at the moment, you only map a certain number of the patients, and there is a percentage of patients that you will identify only by the gene expression test. Now, why is that so? I think it's not entirely clear. And what we do know, all of the signatures, be this breast cancer or myeloma, they're all enriched for genes that have to do with cell growth, with proliferation. So something in there is clearly probably a function of the cell. If we look at genetics, we look at the, the damage that happened in the past. If we look at gene expression profile, we look at what the cell is doing at that moment when you got it out of the bone marrow effectively. And that seems to give you some other information than the genetics alone. Now, the proportion of patients positive is between 15 and 20%. Again, it's slightly different for different signatures. We also are aware, and that's why we use this one, there is only this one signature that is in Europe having a diagnostic label, a so-called CE mark, the Sky92 signature. We, after finding it out in our retrospective trial, that this is something that diagnoses additional patients that we would miss otherwise, we felt compelled and, and more or less forced by the evidence to include this. It made our trial far more difficult to run. Uh, it made it far more expensive to run. And we were for some while not even managing to get it off the ground because the funding needed to be in place. So it's by no means something that, uh, you know, would have been a choice that would have made our lives easier, but we were compelled by that it does something else. So actually, if you look at the proportion of patients overall, you probably, if you profile both for genetics and they are particularly for double hit for gene expression profiling, both, you get about a third of each. You get a third of patients that you only identify with gene expression profiling, a third that you only identify by double hit, and then there is a third that has an overlap of both. Uh, and overall, that group is about 25% of patients. So let me try and summarize that conversation that, that you've just had at a little bit of a simple level. And if I get it wrong, you can edit me. One, one. So the way I sort of see this is almost like traffic lights. You've got this group that have two or more high-risk abnormalities on fish and maybe on gene, exp on gene expression where that's available, who are clearly in the kind of red traffic light. We need to think differently about how we treat these patients. Then there's a group that is like a yellow traffic light. They're the single one of these lesions, plasma cell leukemia, extramedullary disease, where you really need to take the totality of the information and put it all together to decide, do, does this patient need a standard approach or something different? And then the, the kind of rest who can have the standard approach, which is analogous to the green light. Is that a fair kind of three groups of patients to, to try and sum that very complex discussion up into a, a kind of bite-sized morsel? I mean, what, of course, always is the reality is there's a continuum. Any Anything that we try to split into two or three groups, underlying it actually is a continuum. And I, I'm, I know, you know, we're, we're all aware of it, but I do the three groups, actually. I think in many uh, settings in medicine, this has been what you can settle on because you can instrumentalize it to make treatment decisions better than either dichotomizing or making it too complicated by too many groups. And I like it. I think that's a good that's a good analogy. Maybe that many of the plasma cell leukemias I would put, however, into the red group. But nevertheless, you are right. There are lots of nuances that you want to see for some of these entities, especially like extramedullary disease nowadays, to really make a judgment. And I think a three group model uh, captures that quite nicely. Yeah, a great summary, Eddie. And I think those three groups, which are in the red light, they were included in uh, the optimum trial. That is the double hit patients, Sky92 high risk, GEP, and plasma cell leukemia. So I think that's very helpful. So now we'll move on to chromosome one abnormalities, which is another complex topic. So as, as the listeners will know that chromosome one abnormalities in multiple myeloma, it's an evolving topic. It's extremely complex and it, it can get very complicated when we dive into the weeds. However, with Dr. Kaiser, we'll try to break it down crystal clear and go into the basics. So first of all, before we dive into the data for the listeners, I just wanted to summarize what chromosome one abnormalities are. So there are two predominant 
dominant chromosome, one abnormalities in myeloma. One is gain 1Q and the other one is deletion 1P. So we'll talk about the gain 1Q first of all. So there are two kinds of gain 1Q. So one is when we call it gain 1Q, we mean three copies of 1Q. And when we say amplification 1Q, we mean four or more copies of 1Q. And gain 1Q is actually very common. So if we see newly diagnosed patients with multiple myeloma, about 25 to 30% of patients will have gain 1Q or diagnosis. And about 7 to 9% will have amplification 1Q or diagnosis. So if you add them up, it's almost like 40 to 45% of patients. So basically chromosome 1 gain or AMP 1Q is one of the most common cytogenetic abnormalities in newly diagnosed myeloma. And there has been emerging data over the past few years that chromosome 1 abnormality, especially gain or AMP 1Q, it, it may be high risk. And Dr. Kaiser, you, your group has reported one of the largest studies on the prognostic impact of plus 1Q in newly diagnosed myeloma in the era of modern therapies like PI or image-based therapy from the myeloma 9 and myeloma 11 trials, about 2,500 patients with more than eight years of follow-up. So before we pick your brain on that, I wanted to summarize three key findings that I gathered from reading that paper. So the first finding was that both gain and amplification 1Q were adverse prognostic factors with no significant difference between the copy number, which is three copies versus four copies, at least in, in your study. The second finding was that the prognostic impact of plus 1Q was independent of the other components of RIS staging, that is T4, 14, 14, 16, or deletion 17P. And the third was that in that study, actually, I, I saw was one of the largest studies that provided empirical evidence on double and triple hit disease, that is, by showing that each additional high-risk abnormality led to a progressively worse outcome in a dose-dependent manner. So first of all, can you walk us through why do you think your study showed no prognostic difference between gain 1Q and AMP 1Q? Because in some other smaller and retrospective studies, we have seen that AMP 1Q, it does worse compared to gain 1Q. And sometimes we think that maybe AMP 1Q is high risk, but gain 1Q is not high risk. So yeah, I just wanted to pick your brain on that. It's, of course, really difficult question and an interesting question. I think one of the interesting observations that we made. So this study that uh, you, you kindly mentioned was actually a collaboration between us and the German study group. And it emerged from the fact that we had made an observation on gain on 1Q. But to be honest, we really wanted to take it on the next level of validation. We wanted them, and it was a, a, a federated analysis approach. So ultimately, we just shared the analytical uh, algorithm and ran the analysis separately. Now, the German group had published on one of the data sets several years earlier with relatively short follow-up. And at that time, their groups, M1Q and Gain1Q, still separated. And they were surprised themselves that now with mature data, this separation with uh, really long uh, PFS did not return a significant difference anymore. And I guess it brings down that question. When you're looking at these very small subgroups, you of course need actually quite mature data. The data probably for the better risk groups was not quite mature yet. They hadn't relapsed yet. So when you look at the curves now, you can see where if you cut the data somewhere, you might still have gotten the impression that they're running into a different trajectory, but actually they merge later down the line with longer follow-up. So that was quite an interesting one because I think the German group started really with the with the assumption they would see something different. And we saw in the end actually the same picture. And it brings up that question that we often see with the analysis of subgroups in myeloma particularly, which is such a responsive disease. And you see all of these differences, be it MRD, be it very small genetic subgroups, very basic assumptions about the statistics and the power that you need to make a statement about them need to be really fulfilled. Now, having said all of that, of course, it is still hard to imagine thinking this is a driver lesion. Why aren't four copies worse than three copies? I think one of the things that we took into account in our analysis was, however, that other lesions co-occur. So, I mean, the, there are, again, probably a third of gain of one Qs or half of gain of one Qs really only have a gain of one Q, but the majority of them do have another lesion as well. And to be fair, that proportion is higher for AMP one Q. It's probably 60% who have yet another lesion. And when you then want to analyze what the impact of M1Q is, you actually, if you exclude all of those that have a double hit, you end up with a group that's only 3 to 4%. To really make a statement about that is very difficult. And hopefully we will have in the future more 
possibility to do that. And again, I don't want to deny at all that M1Q, even if it's happening in isolation, is a red flag. But in most of the circumstances, it's probably uh, better for, from an education perspective for us all to also talk about what else was present as well, in addition to the M1Q, because in most cases, there will be something else as well. Yeah, I think that's another important thing that sometimes in publications, when, when we are reading, it's important to focus on whether they are talking about isolated AMP1Q or gained1Q, or is there a double hit patient with another, another high-risk abnormality? So it's very important. If you have a patient with newly diagnosed myeloma with, let's say, isolated gained1Q with no other high-risk abnormalities, will you consider that patient as high risk or intermediate risk, maybe yellow light as Eddie was Yeah, saying. Yeah, you're right. I should probably now stick with the analogy of the traffic light and call it yellow from here, yellow flag. I think I would probably consider it a yellow sign at that point. Yes. I think that group still has very wide heterogeneity in their outcomes. It's probably one of the groups that will be very interesting to study moving forward with maybe yet newer genomic analysis tools. We have to keep in mind we're using still very uh, crude methods for such big chromosomal changes. There will and actually, for some of these changes, even newer diagnostic technologies like short read sequencing didn't add much because they don't really help us understand how these genetic changes work on a proper physical molecular level. But there are new methods coming along, such as long-range sequencing, and hopefully we will be able to drill into what 1Q means a bit more. At the moment, for now, I would call it as a, as a yellow flag or a yellow traffic sign. Sounds good. A any other major finding from the study that I missed? before we move on to the next question. I think it was, I think you summarized it very nicely, especially with the additive effect or the, the even adding up more of the risk factors. That was surprising to us how simplistically that works. Of course, again, one can probably uh, build around this a more sophisticated weighted model, but it's always that question whether people will be able to use that in their clinical setting. And I think the evidence that we saw with these very mature data sets did at least strike us as being quite in favor of taking at least when at the moment we're only looking at isolated markers maybe a more integrated approach by counting them up and using that as a more sophisticated traffic light system yeah no thank you both for helping to distill the chromosome one nuances because i was saying to raj before the podcast that i find the chromosome one discussions quite um, confusing. So we do have another chromosome one question for you, which is about DEL1P32. So there was some French data recently showing a negative prognostic impact of DEL1P32, which is present in about 10% of newly diagnosed patients. They also showed that patients with biallelic deletion had a worse prognosis compared to monoallelic deletions. So how do you integrate DEL1P data into your risk stratification of newly diagnosed myeloma? As a simplified answer, again, another yellow traffic light, I would say. It does interact with other markers as much as, again, 1Q. To be fair, there's quite a lot of patients or quite often a deletion of 1P does occur with gain 1Q. But there is another interesting association between deletion 1P and deletion 7MP. Now, why that really is, again, no one really understands. I think the French data was, of course, very striking. But there were two things that I think one could take into account, again, for maybe a little bit more weighted or careful look at it. On the one hand side, that one P historically was considered really a high-risk lesion. There was a very strong signal in the myeloma 9 trial before we had effective maintenance therapy available. So somehow people that had a transplant and then had only follow-up and had the deletion of 1P seemed to be falling off a cliff. Now, some of the French data are relatively older, very mature, of course, but older data sets where patients did not receive maintenance therapy. And I think that's something to keep in mind. DEL1P might be something that does interact with especially maintenance therapy quite a lot. But there are two other nuances, and I know that I might get angry emails after this from the French group, but two groups were not considered in this study. The one is the T1416, T1420 group. So there is a whole again, did another high-risk lesion co-occur with that DEL1P? That isn't quite so clear in the data. And then the French group did, of course, on the basis of the evidence, but some while ago decide to only call very high clonal deletion 17P an adverse lesion. 
That means anyone who had a deletion 70P occurring in less than 55% of their myeloma cells was not called a deletion 70P. And because we know that the DEL1P is particularly associated with DEL1P, we don't quite know how many of those that were called in that study might also have had a subclone deletion 70P. Now, all of that might still mean deletion 70P without doubt, a yellow flag or a yellow traffic light. And biallelic deletions, I think, generally just because they mean that gene is completely lost for function. It's a little bit different than a gene dosage where you gain more copies. When you've lost it, it's just gone forever. Biallelic deletions, I would say, are definitely more towards the red traffic light. So, I mean, I wouldn't doubt that. But I think the overall meaning of DEL1P, I would locate still more in the yellow traffic light. Yeah, that's a super super helpful way to contextualize it. Now we've had our chromosome one bonanza, we can move on to the fun part, which is treatment. So we want to start with some general principles about the different phases of therapy for high-risk myeloma or patients with high-risk myeloma. For induction, um, are you team carfilzomib or bortezomib? (laughs) And is there any kind of data do you think, or what data do you think there is to support using carfilzomib in patients with high-risk disease or a subgroup of of patients with high-risk disease? Oh, yes. So I am not quite decided. I think I'm I'm taking the easy way out here by that. I'm saying Valcade or Bortezomib, sorry. Bortezomib is the only one that's really licensed in first line. And that drives quite a lot of what we can do in our UK practice. There are other advantages that I do see that are just purely practical. And that is dodging slightly your question about the evidence about bortezomib. Now, A, it's generic, and B, it's actually a subcutaneous injection that in the UK, we do tend in many centers to send by post to the patient. And they often don't even have to turn up at our hospital. They just have to have their blood test remotely. They get their proteasome inhibitor sent, and they self-administer that after they have been taught. And that's, of course, a barrier that for carfilzomib will be just not going away, that they have to come in for an infusion. Now, in terms of efficacy, it's really tricky. I mean, I uh, I might not be entirely up to date. There is, of course, a lot of single arm studies or retrospective chart reviews. The randomized trial that compared the two was excluding high-risk patients particularly. I think there might have been an update on including the high-risk patients, but you know you might be in a more up-to-date territory there. In the non-high-risk patients, there wasn't really a difference between the combination of bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone, or carfilzomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. And in actually several of the retrospective analyses of patient groups that also used a transplant in addition with that, there was also probably the majority not showing a difference between the two regimens. Now, I find that very tricky. I think I would suspect, I don't know how practice is really in different settings in different countries. We all have to be very aware we are treating our patients in a very specific way, how our healthcare system works. I would imagine if I decide between the two that I do a certain patient selection. And I do think probably to, I tend to consider the fitter patients probably for the carfilzomib. And whether that might skew outcomes when I compare groups, I don't quite know. Yeah, that's very helpful. I, I think for the endurance trial, they did include only the T414 and the chromosome 1 gain or AMP1Q, but not the other high risk. And there was an update on subgroup analysis. Now, again, once you go to subgroups, as you said, with short follow-up and with limited numbers, it's very hard to know whether the results are accurate. But they showed that for gain1Q, maybe carfilzomib was slightly better, but for AMP1Q, it was not. So that, again, did not make sense. So I think overall, the data is not clear. There is no clear data that carfilzomib is better than bortezomib in a high risk or even like any subgroup of high risk, for example. So so now that we've settled that, the easier question of uh, autologous transplant. Obviously, with the IFM and determination trials uh, showing no overall survival improvement with upfront autologous transplant, do you think that finding holds for high-risk and ultra-high-risk patients? Or how do you approach the conversation around, a decision and conversation around transplant for high-risk and ultra-high-risk patients? 
That's, yeah, a lack of a difference. I think one can, of course, spend a whole day just discussing the outcomes of these trials and whether one considers that they were really powered to answer the overall survival question or not in the end. I think there was a subgroup analysis for, for high risk for the determination trial, which seemed to show an interesting signal for PFS in, an, in favor of the transplant. And although, of course, statistically, by no means long in a follow-up or big enough group, there was at least a hazard ratio that was showing in the right direction in terms of OS if looking at the high-risk group. But that was relatively simplistically defined. I think what, in absence of more randomized data, uh, could be a hint, however, is that both in the master trial as well as in our study, uh, the optimum study and the concept study, we are seeing MRD negativity increases that are quite marked in patients that are subselected to only include high-risk um, disease. So both the uplift in terms of MRD negativity in the group with double hits, two or more high-risk uh, markers co-occurring within the master trial, as well as our group, which was all high-risk patients, as well as the GMMG concept study, are showing in the right, in the same direction. It is quite an uplift with the transplant. Does that explain or does that really cover all heterogeneity in the patient group? Probably not. And we were, when we were designing our high-risk trial, quite concerned about that. We were mostly concerned about the treatment-free episodes that patients have around the transplant. We were probably not so much questioning that the transplant as such will, in most patients, have some efficacy. We were more concerned in the UK, you often need to wait for an apheresis slot. That takes sometimes a month or two. And then the typical recovery is 100 days, and then you do your, your reassessment. And one of the things that we paid a lot of attention to is that we kept both of these elements as short as possible. We even added an extra element, which I think we cannot prove has made a difference, but we added Velcade or bortezomib use to be permissive throughout the transplant. If investigators felt the patient can tolerate that, they could start that already before the reassessment after the transplant in the recovery phase. And at least we had very few treatment failures throughout the transplant and saw that uplift in MRD. So I would probably at the moment be in favor of a transplant for the high risk. Yeah, great. That makes sense. And uh, certainly was the teaching that, that I got in Australia. But the we want to move to maintenance, which you've foreshadowed very nicely. I wanted to ask, you, you said sometimes that the maintenance can start before that 100-day mark if certain if the recovery is goes well. How early are you trying to crack on in this in the high-risk patient group to, to prevent the, them from progressing straight after transplant? Yeah, uh, of course, it is somewhat variable depending on how quickly the hematologic recovery, metapoietic recovery really happens after the malphalan. We normally try to do a reassessment of the disease. We do want to, of course, know at that point where they are with imaging and MRD, but we bring that forward to normally just short before two months after the transplant so that we can start if the patient feels fit enough and is well enough at about two months time point with maintenance or consolidation therapy, consolidation and maintenance. So talking about consolidation and maintenance, there's, we've often heard this kind of trope that LEN maintenance doesn't benefit high-risk patients. However, your group recently published a large analysis randomizing patients between LEN and observation and, and analyzed efficacy by, by cytogenetic subgroups. What did that secondary analysis show? It showed something related to the traffic light analogy in that, and it probably comes back to that general principle, we're thinking about the disease that is getting slowed down and reduced and then is regrowing. And we have one group of regrowth, which is very slow, which is probably the green traffic light, the absence of any risk markers. And I, I see lenalidomide, the outcome was actually for the yellow traffic light, so single markers, we saw a really marked uplift of progression-free survival when the patients were randomized to lenalidomide. But that was on the basis that the patients with these individual single genetic markers, high-risk markers, did actually really badly if they did not receive maintenance therapy after the transplant. So somehow that leads to the question, is a single marker enough to actually speed up the regrowth after a transplant? Now, those that didn't have any high-risk markers they grew back relatively slowly after transplants. The median progression-free survival was reasonable still, even without maintenance treatment, but there was still an uplift, sort of lenalidomide, but by far not at the scale uh, 
the multitude that we saw with those that had a yellow, a single genetic high-risk markers. Now, the patients that had, unfortunately, still a very short progression-free survival were those with two or more high-risk markers. So they did see an uplift. It's still nearly a doubling of the progression-free time. But this comes back to what we consider a satisfactory or not today. They were still relapsing mostly uh, on a median within two years. And someone who has just undergone a transplant with probably a long recovery time, for them, that might not be satisfactory. So we really um, highlighted that group of just isolated genetic markers might actually be the one that is really deriving the most benefit. And the interesting bit, it was the only group when we summarized it together that was also showing an overall survival advantage, despite just being a subgroup with lenalidomide. There was only one group that was somewhat sticking out slightly that was coming back to the cryptic nature of gain of 1q gain of 1q was neither here nor there it did do that terribly badly when the patients did only have observation no maintenance therapy but likewise the pfs was not lifted up either when they received or when they were randomized to maintenance so that's a bit uncertain what that means but for the other groups there's a massive benefit of patients going on to lenalidomide yeah, I think the LEN maintenance, Martin, you summarized really well. I'll just quickly summarize for the audience. So basically, that study showed, as you said, that patients who had a single high-risk abnormality, that is the yellow light that we had talked about earlier based on Eddie's analogy, those are the ones who had the most benefit. Uh, and those who had double hit, those who were double hit or ex extremely high risk or the red light, they had some benefit, but not a lot. They had a little bit of benefit. And those who had no high-risk abnormality, they did well even without maintenance, although there was an uplift in PFS with LEN maintenance. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's accurate. And of course, you can then start to think about models. It could be that you have, um, you can think of the high-risk lesions as, as an engine within the disease. And Yes, the ones with one high-risk marker, they do have an engine, so they do run faster than those without one, but it's a very light engine, so you can actually just, by having a, a chain or something, you can just effectively tame them and keep them in place, whereas those with a double hit, they are effectively the turbocharged super truck, and they even if you have something, it, it will just grow through that. Sounds good. So now we will go into the third part of the podcast, that is clinical trials in is the fun part. And before we jump into the optimum trial, I just wanted to a quick note on the SWOC 12-11 study because it was one of the first randomized trials, which was a high-risk enrichment trial by SWOG that was recently, a few years ago now, published in Lancet Hematology, I believe. So it was a randomized trial in which patients were randomized to either VRD or VRD plus elotozumab, which is an anti-SLAM F7 monoclonal antibody. And there was no transplant in the trial. So it was patients who did not have an intention to move to upfront autologous transplant, but they could have cells stored for future transplant. And that trial included patients who had high-risk uh, fish. So even a single high-risk were included, so not necessarily double hit, and um, also included patients with plasma cell leukemia. So, so Martin, can you tell us what were the top-line results of the trial and, and what did the trial teach us regarding treatment of high-risk patients? So the, the outcome did unfortunately not show or not confirm the primary question of the trial, which was whether addition of elotuzumab to VRD did improve the progression-free survival. It did not improve the progression-free survival. But I think given that the historic assumption was that these patients would probably have a progression-free survival median of about two years' time, the regimens on both arms nevertheless showed an uplift. So the VRD continuous treatment did show a progression-free survival of about three years in this study without uh, an autologous transplant. So I think it's difficult. It would be great, and I'm sure the team is working on seeing more subgroup analysis, although they will be difficult. As we discussed, it will always be smaller and smaller groups, and some of them were included uh, in the original paper and were a little bit difficult to interpret. But I think there is a certain learning from that uh, continuous VRD regimen, even without a transplant for some patients, for example, that we don't want to consider or where we don't have access to more maybe advanced quadruplet combination therapy still has a certain merit. I think there is there is good data in there, and especially in probably less resourced environments, this is a reasonable regimen for high-risk disease. 
So now we will move on to the focus of today's discussion that is ultra high risk myeloma or double hit. And before we jump into the clinical trial data, I wanted to set the stage with historical, I would say recent data, outcome data in this group from different trials. Uh, and it has shown that the two-year PFS in this ultra-high-risk group or double-hit myeloma is um, roughly in the ballpark of 50%, as in the Myeloma 11 trial with LEN maintenance. Also recently at ASH 2023, Dr. Costa had presented outcomes of double-hit patients in MASTER trial and also DARA VRD arm of the Griffin trial, which showed a two-year PFS in the ballpark of about 60% in this patients with ultra-high-risk. Ash 2022, I'm sorry, not 2023. So this brings us to the Optimum MUC9 trial that you led and was recently published in the JCO. And for the listeners, the Optimum trial is a phase two multi-center single arm trial that included ultra high-risk patients, which included either double hit, Sky92 gene expression profiling defined high risk or plasma cell leukemia with a 20% cutoff. And notably two cycles of Bridging therapy were allowed prior to enrollment, which is important because sometimes if that's not done, we weed out some of the patients who are really high risk or present with a aggressive disease. And patients were treated with DARA VRD plus cyclophosphamide, so DARA VRCD induction for six cycles, followed by a single autologous transplant, followed by consolidation part one with DARA VRD for six cycles, then consolidation part two with DARA VR for 12 cycles, and then DARA R maintenance until progression or intolerance. And the primary endpoint of this study was 18-month PFS, and the results were compared with the synthetic control arm, which was a propensity-matched cohort of ultra-high-risk patients from the Myeloma 11 trial. So, Dr. Kaiser, can you tell us what were the top-line results of this trial, and what did it tell us about how high-risk patients are doing with this regimen? So... It's a beautiful summary that I gave. I, I probably do take a step back because I think you already alluded to it and that we allowed the bridging therapy because what one of the things that we wanted to achieve is that we really include newly diagnosed patients as they come. So it was a trial that was actually plugged together with a, a screening protocol in which we offered central genetic and gene expression screening. Now, reason mostly because in the NHS, definitely gene expression profiling, but even the genetic profiling at that time, we're talking now we were designing this in 2015, was not yet standard to that extent. And we started to see this very strong signal about especially the double hits, but also about the gene expression profile from even a generation before of trials. So we did, we knew at the time, our definition was actually going beyond what was the agreed IMW standard, how can we offer this to a wide population? How can we reach people in not only in teaching hospitals, but actually in community hospitals? And that was really the aim. So they could come in and all come a study. No one was pre-screened. We screened them. And we wanted to know how quickly can we get a result as a marker of how likely is it in reality that you can deliver that in a, a diagnostic laboratory uh, and what is the success rate of de de um, delivering a full, complete, comprehensive result, both of genetics and gene expression profiling? Uh, and that was really our first readout. And it was very positive because we could provide a result for everyone within two months. Actually, for most patients, we provide the result within the first month already. So in reality, you probably only need one bridging cycle before making a decision on the intensity. And we achieved a result in nearly 90% of patients. And I think you have to take into account some of these smaller hospitals were in the in in Scotland or in if you know the geography of the UK a little bit, they do take some time to reach us. So you would expect that in a diagnostic laboratory which has better transport modes for the sample between where it's taken and the laboratory, that success rate might even be higher. And at the time when we did that was in con context to be seen, for example, with a study in lung cancer in the UK, where only in the end. 5 to 10% of patients did achieve a result molecularly to be guiding treatment. So I, I think we shouldn't be underestimating, of course, we to compare ourselves with acute leukemias and so on, but they are very easy in terms of getting a result. We have a harder work, and that was one of the important readouts. And we think it's a very strong case together with that we actually reconstructed exactly the molecular landscape of retrospective studies. So we saw the same percentage of Sky92, the same percentage of double hit prospectively in this group, which was amazing actually to see. We really, I think, have generated evidence of one of the first evidence pieces there to say, why are we not doing better diagnostics? Why are we not implementing better diagnostics for these patients? Because then the next step 
of course, was that we offered to those with ultra high risk the treatment that you just detailed very nicely and the really striking results that to that extent, we also didn't estimate at that level, we had to now just amend the trial to extend it longer was that at at 24 months, we did see a progression-free survival rate of 78%. Uh, and at 30 months, it was still 77%. And that was really markedly higher than our comparator arm, which was predefined. And just as a small detail, but it was a Bayesian designer, so it was not propensity match. It was actually a different process. And the overall survival signal, which also shows a very early sign, of course, but in such a trial, we consider that as very important, also shows a mild signal. This is not statistically significant at this point. This is not what, how the trial is powered either. But I think all we could expect there is that we don't have a detrimental signal that if we use all of these treatments up front, we're damaging the patient in the end and hurting them. So even that is at least the curve is running better for the new trial, for the optimum treatment than for our comparator data. So I think these were the two really outcomes that were for us very satisfactory. We saw a high MRD rate as well of 64% after the transplant, but we knew that response is not everything in this high-risk group. We, we, we were mostly designing the trial around preventing relapse. And I think that was... Uh, very rewarding to see that the design led to a, a far better progression-free rate. Yeah, I think you summarized it greatly. So this regimen was slightly more intense, but as I was just saying from the ASH 2022 data, like from the MASTER trial and the Griffin trial, and those were only double hit patients, but not Sky 92 GEP high risk. I don't think we can completely compare these data sets, but they showed a two-year PFS of roughly about 60%. And here you are seeing a two-year PFS of in the ballpark of about approximately 75 or more than 75%. So, I mean, of course, it's cross-trial comparison, but maybe this regimen is performing better. I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about continuous therapy versus MRD-guided de-escalation in, in ultra-high-risk? Do you think you would be nervous to de-escalate like they did in master trial, MRD-driven in ultra-high-risk patients based on this data? I think... Uh... Master, of course, did follow up and report again that uh, most patients that did relapse or show a reappearance apparently were somehow rescuable at that point. I think one of the important things to ask yourself, and this is actually how I like to see or how I, I, I approach designing trials, one of the key questions that you have to ask yourself is, can you access that treatment that you want to then give if the MRD does reemerge in that ultra high risk group? I'm not talking about patients generally. And I do think there is probably a lot of scope by diagnosing patients better and actually th thinking about de-escalation strategies and those that have no high risk markers, the green group. But in the ultra high risk group, a, you have to be able to diagnose your relapse really in time, and B, you have to have the treatment regimen that you want to restart again really at hand. To that point of the restarting the treatment regimen, for example, in the NHS, that is a no-go. Yeah, So we cannot just restart what we just stopped. Of course, if we had the evidence, eventually, maybe that is something that the payers will agree to. But that for us, that is not a reality. Now, that's making the discussion about such a hypothetical scenario very different, depending on where you're working and how you want to treat your patient. But let's assume now that I could restart again. I'm not quite so sure whether I am entirely comfortable with that, because I do believe that there is a certain element of genetic and genomic instability in these ultra high-risk tumors. And the moment that you see a reappearance of MRD, you will I, I'm thinking at that point, probably more like a biologist. I'm thinking this must have been 10 cells two months ago and to be MRD visible again, they have multiplied to be a thousand cells. The risk that in a in genomically unstable disease, something happens that makes that disease more aggressive on that way would be for me personally with the treatments that we have at the moment too high. That doesn't mean that with other treatments that we might get in the future, that might change. But if it was me at the patient, as a patient at, at, with that knowledge, I would be hesitant to de-escalate in that risk group. Yeah, no, that seems like a, a fair enough approach. And I, having worked in Australia and now being based in the US, I appreciate that it very much depends on, and 
we talked to a colleague of ours um, who practices in Canada and they also get this sort of one, one, one hit um, for each drug type approach and sometimes even only one in a class of drugs. And so you have to think very carefully about when you're going to use your kind of game token for that drug or that class of drugs. So I totally un understand that. Um, I'm intrigued about your choice to use a synthetic control arm. So what uh, led you to choose a synthetic control arm instead of, say, designing a phase two randomized trial? So the key considerations were, and, and again, it's important to to roll back time and think about 2015, 2016. A, there was no Griffin trial out at that time. There was no data on that. It was running at the time. We were allowed to use the drug because there were safety data emerging, but there was no result. And it started with two main factors. One was we were giving the patient more information than they would have had as standard of care. So we were giving them probably bad news. And there was no agreed treatment standards that would have been really something that we could have been basing on how to design the comparator arm. So even the SWOC trial wasn't reported at that time. So even VRD continuous or so was not really evidence-based yet at the time. I know that people were talking about confer at conferences about that, but there was very little data out there. So actually in that scenario in the UK, particularly, we would have been um, thrown back at using VT, our standard of care, which would have been VTD, uh, a single transplant, and no maintenance therapy. As ridiculous as that sounds, but that was the reality in 2015. So the whole circumstances of the trial for us then meant we would probably really confront the patients with quite a, as much as it's an experiment as every trial, but we would confront them with an emotionally very difficult message. We would say, we would first tell them, you have really aggressive disease, Either you get this really new, exciting treatment, or you get something that we actually know doesn't work quite well. And that was, for us, both ethically a challenge. Of course, you can say, to be fair, every experiment is an ethical challenge. What do you get out of it? But actually also for recruitment, it was just for us not imaginable that people will be liking this trial. And there's a whole complexity of emotions around trials. Some trials are just attracting people and some people trials are weirdly, the longer they run, they're repelling patients more and more. And we, were, we wanted to have an answer. Now, the only alternative that we then were facing, either we run a single arm trial without any comparator, but we did know in the UK that would not fly even if we have a result. We want with the result to go potentially to our payers and say, look, but this is better what we're doing at the than what we're doing at the moment. And then, of course, the very fortunate circumstance came into play that there had been just a very large trial completed in, in the UK, myeloma 11, and that was had a predecessor generation as well, the myeloma 9 trial. And the genetics and gene expression results that we got were very similar for both of these trials in terms of really consistent in identifying these. And that led us to define the comparator group not on the basis that we were going to pick on basis of predefined match criteria or, or even hindsight propensity matching, but we designed the inclusion criteria for the new trial to be flexible. As I said, all comers, everyone can join. We then screen and we use the same molecular markers as in the past trial to identify the group. So it's purely based on genetic markers, how the group was identified, assuming that we would catch the same population, same hospital, same country, and same healthcare system. So is that the end of randomization and everyone should start using synthetic controls? Could you talk specifically about the population and, and why it's perhaps appropriate in this population mm -hmm. to, to choose a synthetic control arm? I think it's definitely not supplanting randomization in all scenarios. But having said that, this scenario where you don't really have an agreed treatment standard or there are very practical barriers or even ethical concerns uh, in a well-defined subgroup, I think it also has to do with that you have to be able to define your subgroup that you're narrowing in on really well and ensure that you can include a very similar population, ideally in the same geography in the future, I think they should be considered more as alternatives because everyone is mentioning them at the moment. Everyone is considering them, whether they should be a tool for licensing. So for marketing authorization is a big question mark. I'm not quite so sure. Licensing often has to do more with a safety signal toxicity, whether that's the best tool to use for that. I don't know. 
but there are lots of decisions that are to be made as well how drugs are used once they are licensed. So actually reimbursement trials. And I'm wondering whether for that letter, there could be really settings that need to be very well considered, but where they could be quite useful. Yeah, I think that's a really important example. This is a slightly left of field example, but a drug like defibrotide, I find very hard because there's never been a randomized trial. Whereas the point here is not only are you taking a high-risk subgroup without a clear standard of care, which is a small subgroup of patients, and you have another trial that's run in the same centers that you're using as a comparator group. So it's a very kind of, you've clearly defined all those things beforehand. But also these drugs, certainly now, are all approved. It's not like there's a new drug in here that we don't know if, we know that each of these components works as an anti-myeloma drug. You're trying to optimize, pardon the pun, when to use which drugs and in what combination, but each drug has known anti-myeloma uh, efficacy. So I think that's a really um, important distinction. So I, I guess as a kind of the next question that Raj and I are curious about is, what do you think the next trial in ultra high risk myeloma um, look? Do you think it's hard to persuade particularly spon trial sponsors to focus on a small subgroup mm -hmm. because it's you obviously if you have a, a new drug, you want it to uh, be used in as many people as possible. So I guess, how would you or how are you thinking about designing follow-up trials to further improve the outcomes of for, for these patients? There are, of course, different angles in terms of nearly utility, in which way you could enhance, hopefully, future outcomes by focusing on this ultra-high-risk group. So the one side is, of course, the patient unmet need. So interestingly, both in our trial as well as in the GMMG concept trial, we did still see 20-25% early relapses. And that's a really very difficult to treat group. That is, of course, something that we are working, I think, in multiple trials now to still identify better who is still failing quadruplet biological induction therapy at the moment. It's a big question mark what could be a better treatment for these patients. And maybe it's something really to wreck your brain on. But it's definitely an unmet need group that is still there. I think then, of course, you could take the other 75% that we're now with quite complex ongoing treatment, but really triple combination ongoing therapy or quadruple even need to treat to control the disease. There is a question how much could be treatment potentially de-escalate with the very exciting immunotherapies that we're coming seeing along. I would personally find the T-cell engagers really interesting in that group. Could this be something whereby the complexity, especially of the long-term treatment, could be simplified? And once it's simplified, Maybe uh, if the efficacy is standing up, we could even think about more treatment breaks. But I think these are the next steps ahead for the group that we're capturing quite well. But you could see, of course, the coming back to the traffic light analogy or maybe the engine type analogy, you could see this group, of course, in a completely different utility corner. You could see it just as a supercharged version of the other myelomas that you have. And in that respect, of course, it can give suddenly the assumption, and at the moment with the agents that we have at the moment, it doesn't seem, apart from BCL2 targeting venetoclax, that any of the subgroups is really particularly behaving substantially differently. You could just see it as the, the, the myeloma on speed version. And then, of course, you could use it for early readouts of efficacy, potentially, of agents that might benefit others as well further down the line. Now, how much that will serve the patients and their needs is a big question mark. We don't want to end up with a completely fragmented group just for the purpose of speeding up drug development processes. But I think that's something for us as the community to consider jointly how to use that in the best purpose. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. I think if you take it, what's already a five drug regimen and you're talking about whether adding a sixth or adding a sixth or a seventh drug at a certain time point might also become hard to tease out then what is the effect of the novel drug. But yeah, you might have, by being so effective with Optimum, you might have shot that idea in the foot a little bit because now <laughs> yes. you now do you really want to not offer someone the Optimum regimen if if you don't know how good a new, a new drug is? I did want to just spend like the last couple of minutes asking you about a shared interest of yours and mine, which is this idea that we are lucky, particularly in myeloma, to have all these new effective drugs, but the drugs often come at a high price. And for the first couple of years a drug is around, there's often a lot of uncertainty around 
is this really a game changer or a blockbuster and how much of a game changer or a blockbuster drug is it? And so the process that pretty much every middle and high income country other than the US uses to appraise that is called HTA or health technology assessment, which is a bit of a funny term, but that's the term that was used. And so I wanted you to, if you can tell us a little bit about HTA and how it works to uh, decide which drugs different countries, such as in the UK, decide to reimburse or, or not. So health technology assessment goes effectively a step further than our standard randomized trial that leads to a licensing or marketing authorization of a drug, because this is something that one only learns over time. Ultimately, the marketing authorization is probably what it tells us mostly is that the drug is not having a, a detrimental effect. So I once was in a meeting with a, uh, a regulator and they were saying that effectively for as long as you show that you're not hurting someone and you have the same efficacy, you might gain marketing authorization. So it, it does tell us it's not a negative effect, probably more so than health technology uh, assessment, which asks us ultimately about a value proposition. It asks us about, it starts with, normally there is a, there's a model that's being used, it's called PICO, and it actually asks that question, in which population, which effect are you wanting or are you expecting or are you setting as the criteria to really show that you're benefiting these patients and that you're benefiting the healthcare system overall in terms of cost effectiveness. Now, that's a wide field. And of course, there are um, different methods that can be used. One of the most common ones is that you uh, define what is called qualies or quality adjusted life years. Um, there are other ways as well to do that, but that's in, uh, often in cancer used. So effectively, you don't only look whether a treatment is improving survival, but you also take into account what quality of life patients had. Now, that's a very debatable concept, of course, but effectively, let's say you have a long prolongation of survival, but the quality of life doesn't allow a lot of daily activities. You effectively get the same quality as if you have a shorter prolongation of life, but the patient during that time can do everything that they want normally and would do normally. And that's being compared between two treatments. And that's actually where the evaluation in principle and theory should derive quite a good or a, a valid result for everything. But this is where the problem starts because the this information is not captured for many treatments as well as we would hope for. And that can have different reasons. It starts with that often we want to compare it against what is the standard of care at the moment in a certain country. And that might not have been the comparator group or certain qualities of such as quality of life of the patient, certain dimensions have not been measured in the trial. And that leads to uncertainty. So if you if we read that a drug is not approved in certain countries, for example, NICE often does need to go to, through several rounds, even if the treatment is very effective on paper on the registration trial, then it often has to do with that the quality of the data is just not good. So effectively, you have a lot of uncertainty. And it's more that longer follow-up is needed to be able to answer that question than that the evaluating body thinks the treatment is not good. It's just that you don't really achieve an answer at that point. That's good. Thank you, Dr. Kaiser, for the really excellent discussion today on high-risk myeloma and also teaching us about the HTA, which in US we don't talk about as much, but I do listen when I talk with other colleagues in, in Europe or in the UK and I often hear about it. So it was good to learn what it is. So thank you very much again for coming and for your time. And uh, we hope to bring you back again in future for to talk about other topics in myeloma. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.